Hello, my friends. Welcome to another Live with Matt Rad. This week, we are sponsored by nobody. We don't have any sponsors. We don't charge anything. We don't run ads. No one is paying us anything. We just say whatever we want and chat and give the information for free. All that we ask in return is that you share it with somebody. You can participate on the Discord. You can ask questions. You can come check it out live. We're just building a resource for record makers to get good information. And today is no exception. This is one of my favorite episodes that we've done. I spoke to Rory and Spider about studio construction maybe a year ago, um, maybe 10 months ago. But this time I just had Rory alone to talk about mastering for the full hour. Rory is one of the wisest, most knowledgeable, and most level-headed people I know. And we talk a ton about mastering today, really with the idea to demystify the process and I guess counter a lot of the bad information that's out there, as you'll hear in the hour. We, we really get into the why of having a mastering engineer, the history of it, and then what to do these days to master your records. Um, so I hope you guys get a lot out of this. It's something we've been talking about doing for a while. I had a great time talking to Rory, and we'll definitely have him back on. He's become really like the king of the discord since he came on about a month ago. He just spends all his downtime instead of scrolling social media. He just goes and hangs out on the discord and drops crazy knowledge. So if you haven't joined the discord, go there. It's a great community of people. We talk about it a bit today as well, but um, yeah, go check that out. And uh, yeah, it was great talking to Rory. Here's my conversation. Hey, what's up, buddy? How are you? I am doing okay. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Let me actually, I'm going to turn my uh, brightness up a little bit. Cool. Okay. okay, I have a ring light, but it seemed a little too okay. much. No, you look you Let look beautiful. Know. You look handsome and youthful and uh Thank and you. ready to ready yeah. to talk about mastering, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. It's good to see you and good to see you last week for dinner. It was great. Oh yeah, man, it was great. I'm I'm glad um you guys uh, it was you and you and Lars and John could include me. It was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and, and we, I almost feel like we we started having some of the conversation, perhaps that we are going to have today. Um, I yeah. appreciate how excited and passionate, and um, I mean, obviously, you're, you're a mastering engineer and you're a great mastering engineer, but you're you're interested in these topics in the way that uh, I am, and obviously, John is. You and John are very close, and you guys had a great podcast conversations for a while, and uh, I know you and I have spoken at length about. This sort of stuff. And also, you've been uh, an amazing contributor in the Discord. We, we somehow wrangled you onto the Discord uh, in the last month, and you've just been amazing. Just if, if people aren't on the Discord and you want to get the best possible information, there's people like Rory and Kean and Beckley and all these amazing people on there that we've had. And also amazing people that haven't been on the podcast, uh, haven't been on these conversations that are just sharing information. So I appreciate how much you're, how much time you spend on there. It's been really cool to see sure. you on there. Yeah. It's yeah, it's replaced my Twitter and Instagram habits. I'm trying to use studio downtime to be in there or, you know, when I'm in line at Starbucks or some shit, you know, that's it's, fantastic. Uh, I need to do yeah. my phone settings were being a little weird. Yeah, you, you said, sorry, you, you said you've been spending you spending your spare time just basically, basically helping people. Yeah, <laughs> my goofy internet time when I would be looking at Instagram or scrolling reels or some bullshit. It's, it's a better use of my time. And I think I the the, the thing I wanted to say about the Discord for people who aren't on there is it's less about the expertise, I think. There's great expertise there, but it's more about the spirit there is definitely more open to new ideas or open to 
it, it's much less sort of like predetermined than most of the spaces on the internet. Most of them seem to have like rule sets. It's like, oh, this idea about mixing, this idea about mastering, this idea about this piece of gear. And there's a lot of push and pull on the Discord, on your Discord that I think is really healthy. So it's for people who would be sort of cynical, people who would be like, oh, I don't do gear slots. It's like, okay, this is not quite that. It's worth, it's worth hopping on. Um, yeah. Yeah, it I, took me a minute I, I, to get used to the flow of it. it it's very fast moving. Um, but it, that also has its own upsides, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it is part of our, our meaning the whole community, our, our desire to create spaces and create a knowledge base for people to um, share good information, but not be precious about things being the right information, which I know you and I have spoken mm -hmm. about a lot. And we will get into today, yeah. uh, maybe later on in the conversation about um, you know, th there, there are some things that are, well, we're going to describe the way we see things as they are, but uh, a big part of a, a lot of these music conversations, um, technology is changing quickly, formats are changing quickly, roles mm -hmm. are changing, oftentimes roles are changing much more quickly than um, we have names for them. So um, yeah. maybe the maybe the best way to start, and you and I spoke about this, we have a, some idea for some structure, we've got questions. Um, but the, the first thing um, was maybe defining what is mastering, talk a little bit about the history of it. And I thought it might be best for me to do my um, not as educated as you version summary as the way I see it. And then you can mm -hmm. kind of make some corrections. Um, what is a mastering engineer? What is the history of it? Essentially, as I see it, um, a mastering, mastering a record is the last technical process before distribution. So after all of the production and mixing and recording and all of that, um, someone has to take the mix down that someone has done in a studio and get it to whatever distribution format exists. Now that used to be vinyl back in the day. So there was actual technical expertise about what kind of frequencies and level could actually be physically cut into a piece of vinyl. So how much mm -hmm. low end, how much high end, you know, dynamics, um, treating dynamics in such a way where you could get the right amount of loudness compared to the noise floor, because, you know, these old analog formats had lots of, had a high noise floor, a short dynamic range. So the quieter it was, the more noisy the format was. From there, we get to um, cassette tapes, which are going to be different. I assume eight tracks, which were short-lived, had their own format issues about loudness and distortion mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Then you get to CDs, then you get to uh, mp3s and you get to streaming so over the course of recorded music history let's just say the 1930s or 40s commercial recorded music you have to have someone who understands the the way that the music is going to be distributed and consumed and if you have one person who is an expert at doing that over and over and over that person is valuable to the process that is the mastering engineer um is that is that a, is that a decent summary you, you have anything uh -huh. to add to just that yeah no that's i mean that's yeah that's exactly the history of it and and i think there's two important things to maybe tag on to that one is that for quite a long time in the vinyl era all of this work was done in-house at labels so at at capital or at deca or at emi the guys and it was guys then uh, I'm, I'm going to be using guys and girls interchangeably in in respect of of all the, the women who are doing this too. Yeah. Um, but then it was all guys and they were in the basement of these labels and studios and it was all done in house. And someone that I was lucky enough to meet was, um, before he died, was Doug Sachs, 
who is basically the, the, the father of modern mastering. And he was the first guy to take it out of the label's hands and to offer third-party sort of um, commercial mastering as we understand it today. And basically, he thought, I could do this better. I can do this faster. I can do this. I can sort of lean into the artistic elements of it. Because aside from a technical sort of challenge, there's an artistic opportunity. Mm. And Doug leaned into that beautifully and basically invented the game as we know it today and um, did incredible work for, for decades. Um, so we owe him a lot. And, um, but he, he was sort of one of the people who started leaning into this artistic opportunity. It's like even in the, in the sort of Motown versus Stax days, there was a loudness war on vinyl for seven inches and people going, why does that seven inch sound better than my seven inch? Mm. And there was some guys who had the answer or who were searching for the answer. And that has never really ended. So when, when people sort of lament, you know, oh, the loudest wars and this and that and say, you know, it used to be better. It's like, well, records used to be more dynamic, but we've had some version of this competition for forever. Um, you know, and, and if you go back to sheet music and piano rolls, it, it existed then too. There was always, people will always compete for attention. Um, so we are a part of, we're a part of, you know, we're doing technical work to make sure that it gets to the consumer in good shape. Um, we're doing uh, some artistic framing of the work um, and uh, sort of, we're also doing something which I think is very underrated you know, if, if I had to zoom out enough on what mastering is, the most important thing that I do, and I think any good mastering engineer does, is we take a client across the threshold. And on one side of that threshold, anything is possible. We can change the mix. We can drop a song. We can add a feature. We can make it brighter. We can make it louder. And on the other side, the record is done. Mm. Emotionally, we're bringing them over a threshold that says, over here, I have all the options. Up until the day a record comes out, and sometimes after, which is hilarious, and we, ch we can change anything. Um, but when, what, what, I need to, what I need the most from a mastering process is that the client feels done and they feel ready to share it with the world and they feel excited and they feel like if there were things we needed to figure out, we figured them out. If there was doubts, we answered them. If, you know, that process of bringing them into that space of I'm ready to share this work with the world. Not, I'm ready to do one more tweak on the, on the vocal level, or I'm, I'm not sure if Song 7 should have been there. So that's something, in, in, certainly in the modern era, that, that I think is very important. And, and I, I, I spend a lot of time and attention in my work and, and in talking to people about mastering to sort of highlight that, because I think it's underrated. Well, that's a, that's a, very, a very important point, and I want to dig deeper into that, this idea that the mastering engineer is the last person in the creative process because um, it really is the last bridge between making, like you said, making the record and finishing and, and it being out for distribution for consumers. I also wanted to define really quickly because I, I would like this to be kind of let's let's be as broad as possible. If people don't mm -hmm. know what the quote unquote loudness wars are, we all yes. know the idea that if you turn something up a little bit, um, people will like it a bit more. Oftentimes, you know, you if you open a plug in, the default setting has the gain turned up a little bit. You, you open the plug in, you're like, I like this better. And it's just because it's louder. Yes. Um, you know, through the, as you said, through the course of music history, there's always been, if you play one rec, two records next to each other, the one that's a little bit louder is likely to have a little more excitement to it because mm -hmm. people respond to that. 
So the the quote unquote loudness wars were really in they talked about it in the CD era where people were trying to make basically as loud recordings as they possibly could on the CD digital format. Um, and there was lots of criticism about dynamic range getting squished and records starting to be distorted. Um, now we're in a whole nother era of craziness with LUFS and streaming and distortion. Mm-hmm. People are doing all kinds of stuff, but there's always been a conversation about, uh, and we've, I think we've done full hours about this, about loudness. Yeah. Um, so we could, we could get into that more, but I just wanted to define that real quick that there's been lots of discussion for, for those like 20 year olds watching this, there was a whole discussion in the nineties and two thousands about the loudness war that it's worth looking into, I suppose. Well, one of the things I wanted to, there's so many, we always get so many technical questions. What, what, uh, converters, what, uh, what saturation, what do you do? So from my perspective, uh, and it's, we're, we're going to go past this quickly, but what a mastering engineer does technically is not some magical mumbo jumbo. It's not a, and please feel free to adjust anything that I say. Um, there is very oftentimes very expensive equipment that is the best possible conversion and the best possible EQ and the best possible mm-hmm. listening environment, maybe the most important thing. Um, but, you know, a mastering engineer might do a little EQ, a little compression, or a little widening, or none of that, or, you know, it's a very, it's a subtle process technically. And that's something that we always get these questions of what saturator, what EQ, what, and it's not to say that that doesn't matter, but in the grand scheme of things, that's not why mastering is important. Um, I I do ultimately want to get into who, you know, who should spend money on mastering where and when, um, Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of people making records in their basement where they have no budget for anything. And we could talk about that all the way up to if you have unlimited budget, what do you do? But um, I don't know if you can go off of that, but the actual technical aspect of a mastering engineer isn't, I I don't want people to be, I want to demystify that aspect of it. And then that's not really what's important about it. I don't know if you could speak off that. Yeah. So, Something, you know, there's a there's a trope on the internet, on Instagram, basically on so many of the tutorials that I get advertised every day, you know, that that mastering is processing and that it's in some way some sort of high end, high minded, you know, uh, sort of dark art where we're doing esoteric things to your record. And some of that might be true sometimes, but the most important thing that we're doing is we are an objective ear. So just, you know, the EQ that I use on 90% of the records I do costs $200. You know, half the people here have it on their computers right now. I use Pro L2 for my limiter almost all the time. I don't have some super secret weapon limiter that you don't have. And same for Garinger, same for Randy Merrill, same for whoever, Dale. We're using broadly similar tools. More and more, we're using the same plugins that, you know, normal engineers are using, right? So the listening environment is very important. Obviously, having a, a, a great high-end listening environment, the best we can, that we can trust, and more importantly, that we know. Um, but the objectivity is hugely underrated. So when you make a record, you or, you know, Radiohead or Dua Lipa or anyone watching here today or someone who's made their very first record, there's a journey. And it can be difficult. There's a lot of options. There's a lot of choices. There are arguments. The the you know there are falling outs. There are disagreements. 
And along the way, your view of what you have becomes colored by all of these experiences. It's, it's can be hard to see, you know, what you really have. If you've heard a song a thousand times and it sounds too bright in the studio, but it sounds too dark in the car and you're not sure and your buddy comes in in a bad mood because he just, you know, broke up with his girl and he's like, I'm not feeling it, bro. You get this weird collection of sort of hangups and, and also the opposite. You can, you can be overly, um, sort of attached to ideas or maybe think something is a little more, uh, you know, hitting a little harder than it is. So the mastering engineer comes in and she opens that file and has never heard this, has no idea of this difficult journey that you've been on, this Lord of the Rings epic. And she presses play and goes, hmm, this is good. Listens down, feeling it, but it's a little dark. And she knows that because she is listening to commercial work. She is listening on the same system every day for many, many years. And, you know, it's just intuitive. It's like, this is not, this needs X, Y, or Z. And that's hugely valuable. It's, it's, the, it's one of the most important things that we bring. And at that point, she might reach for, you know, Pro-L or, or, or Pro-Q3, the same thing you have, but she has the objectivity, she has the listening environment, and she has the experience of knowing the trade-offs. So one of the things that's not, you know, in mastering, we have the two-track and nothing else. You know, if we put aside STEM mastering, which I think is rare and for good reason, we have the two-track. So if I hear something and go, this vocal is not speaking, if I push four, five, six K, the snare is coming up too, you know, or the wide synth, you know, thing. So we have, we're constrained in what we can do. And that's not a bad thing. You know, we're, we're, we're pushing and pulling subtly and, and framing the work basically, you know? Yeah. I, I, I think that is, that is the key that I really wanted to hit on for this hour and we can go so many different directions with it. The value of a mastering engineer, and let's think really quickly about the scale and cost. Uh, roughly speaking, an A-level mastering engineer versus an A-level mixing engineer is about uh, an order of magnitude different. So if a mm -hmm. great mastering engineer, if, if a, a mixing engineer is three grand, a mastering engineer is 300 for a song, something like mm -hmm. that. It obviously yeah. varies a little bit, um, but you are getting, you are paying for experience and ears and perspective all at once of someone who's done presumably thousands and thousands, you know, John and I've talked before about, you know, how many, how many songs uh, did it take for John or I to mix or produce or whatever before we felt like we were good. And it's a, maybe, maybe a couple thousand, um, you know, the great mastering engineers have done tens of thousands of songs. Yeah. Um, and so the, like you said, to have someone at the end of your process of making your record who can listen to something totally objectively with a huge amount of experience and make whatever few little changes need to be made to usher it to the finished step. That's what you're paying for essentially. Yes. And yeah. then the question is, okay, when do you pay for that versus pay for something else? Now, certainly if you have five grand and you want to get your song finished, you can pay for a great mixer, a great master. Um, for those people, there, there were a number of questions like, I've paid for mastering and it's been really bad. Now I just want to master my own stuff. 
there's guys like Mike Dean, there's guys like Skrillex, there's these people who mix and master their own stuff. Although, you know, I don't know if every time these things happen, but I've mm -hmm. heard these stories as we all mm -hmm. probably have. Um, what, what do people do when they go, well, I can't just be shelling out 300 bucks a song every time I want to put a song out what do i do i mean this is why as you said there's so much yeah. marketing out there for here's your mastering solution here's your loudness solution and i think it's important for people to know that's not what you know you have all the tools yeah. if you want to make your shit loud and you have zero money just put your pro l2 on there and try to make it sound great and ab against a bunch of other things and you know and then you can learn the streaming formats and read it from apple and read it from spotify and all that but if you have some money and you can spend on a mastering engineer, that's that's the idea. I don't if you can just yeah. run off that a little bit. No, that that makes total sense. And and you know something that I wanted to get across today is when people. So we talked about this a little on text this week. I grew up in a small town in Ireland. So I moved to LA eleven years ago. But my the first. 20 years of my record making life for 18 years were in Ireland in a small town in a small country where good equipment and mentors were very hard to come by and um, I never saw an SSL in Ireland I never saw a large format console in my life in my entire record making life I didn't put my hands on an SSL until I got here maybe no but that's not true but but until not long before I got here and um, it was a it was very hard to get the information that I needed. I had no idea where the producer ended and the mixer started, where the arrangement ended and the mastering engineer took over. I just had no sense of scale or what mattered. And I think that that, you know, what I've come to learn in my time here, which wasn't at all obvious to me when I was in Ireland, when I was that guy on the island, is that the sound of great records that you hear, modern records, is not made in mastering. There was a time when more of the sound of the record was shaped in mastering. We're not in that time. Maybe we will be again. I don't know. Um, I'm, not, I'm not one for pining for the past, right? But now when you hear a, a record that Manny or Serban or John mixed, the mastering engineer did not make it sound the way you're hearing. The mastering engineer did small, often subtle corrections, sometimes crucial, but they're not making the record feel the way it feels. That's all imprinted already. And it's so wild, sorry, just a, yeah. as a quick, it's so wild how many times I've heard from professionals, A&Rs, managers, even artists and producers be sending me something going, it's not mastered yet though. Yeah. And as though that it's gonna drastically change or you know, that whenever I send a song out for master or even, you know, again, you can speak on this as well, like mastering doesn't change it that much from a like technical mixing perspective, but it's, if it's a good mastering engineer, it's going to change it just the right amount in the right way. Mm -hmm. And then it's done. And that's the, that's the, that's what we're doing is it's done. And that feeling of it's a cohesive one piece of work that the technical disappears and the song comes through. But all that to say, if you're making, we're, we're talking about, you know, dis, the decision tree for someone starting out or someone maybe who's in the middle of the journey saying, where should I put my money? And more often than is good for my business, I write to people who are on a tight budget and say, you shouldn't pay me to master this. You should have someone mix it better. You know, and yeah. that 
the difference between a Serban mix and the record that comes out is almost nothing. Very a, small. a great mix. The difference between John's mixes and Dale's masters, it's very small. It's crucial. I'm not diminishing it at all. I love it. I live in that pocket. But we have to know that it's small, even with sort of mid-level, if we're talking budget or whatever, mixers, their ref mixes sound very good. Now I'm doing meaningful things. My People like me are doing meaningful things. They, but but the, the sound, the feel, the shape of the record is defined in, you know, product, in arrangement, production, recording, and mixing. Um, so if your stuff sounds janky and you think that mastering is the missing puzzle piece for $500 a track, it's not going to work. Sometimes, occasionally, I've pulled rabbits out of the hat and I've seen people do it too, heard people do it, but it's not where the sound of those records is made. So um, an important, you know, the, the, the most important place where a record takes shape is in the arrangement, you know, in the writing, in the arrangement. And then from there, each step has less sort of impact on the outcome. So the, the production... The, the recording, the mixing, each step has less control over the overall shape of it. The arrangement is a huge, huge and underrated thing. Again, because nobody can sell you arrangement on the internet. They can't sell you an arrangement box. So, mm. it, so its value has been pushed down in the, in the, on gear slots, on Instagram, on all these tutorials. They can sell you one weird trick. They can sell you a $10,000 compressor, but they can't sell you a good arrangement. And, and, they, and they can't sell you objective ears that you trust. I mean, no. that's this is a big a big thing that I wanted to, and I actually don't know where this is going to go. I was going to kind of freestyle it. <laughs> I almost I almost feel like if you're a young record maker of really any kind, and it gets back to what we talk about uh, collaborating and building your community, that really what a mastering engineer should, how they should function in your life as a record maker, as a producer, mixer, engineer, whatever, is that. There's someone you have an ongoing relationship with that you trust to give you. It's almost like, it's almost like the most refined mix feedback or something. It's not, not exactly that, but like, like a friend of yours that you always go to at the end and that's their job and you give them the finished product and they know your taste and they know your tendencies. John talks about this with Dale a lot where mm -hmm. they know each other very well and they know what kind of things that they get back from each other when what john delivers what dale gives back and that relationship allows them to trust the finishing process or allows john to trust the finishing process so i almost feel like the there's a number of people that ask questions about well i've paid so and for some random person for mastering and i hated it what mm -hmm. should i do me too and, <laughs> i had yeah. exactly that experience many times over um or or you know where i didn't get to make the decision and someone else did and i didn't like the outcome yeah. Um, and it's why I started um, mastering, because I was yeah. not happy. Now, I don't think I was correct. I think some of the masters I was getting back were good, and I didn't know how to... I was listening to the masters on my, on my speakers in the janky room I was in and thinking, oh, this is, this is no good, and maybe it was a lot better. Um, and eventually I found I, and used Dave, who's the, the room that I work in um, is owned by my friend Dave Collins, and uh, who's been a mentor to me for, for a long time. And... Uh, Eventually, I found Dave and did some records with him, and the experience was like, "Oh, I get it." You know, and what was it about that experience? What was what 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 turned on the light for you? A, a lot of a lot of the quiet, sort of less verbal confidence, and sort of less. I think 
and I've been guilty of this a lot. I think um, a lot of mastering engineers want to sort of impress with either the, the sort of dark art element or the technical wizardry or the whatever. And Dave is one of the most technically competent people I've ever met. His understanding of, you know, down to the sort of atomic level of what's happening is better than almost anyone in the music business, but he doesn't bring that to bear on the, on the process. It's, it's, it, it informs it and he's using it, but not in a, not in an overt way. So you have this sort of, there was this lovely sort of low key focus on the work, focus on the songs and sort of allowing the record to be what it is. Um, and I've learned a ton from Dave that way over the years, not by the things he said, like you should always do this or think of it this way. It's much more about the stuff he doesn't say and, and the things that are, you know, where, where, the, where we're shining that sort of flashlight of attention, you know? And, yeah. and I've learned a lot from that and from, from other experiences. It's, it's natural to want to, if you're enthusiastic about something or, you know, flip side insecure about it, to want to sort of flex about technical things and, and when people ask me, like, oh, what about this compressor? Or what about this dither? I'll try to steer it away and say, well, what about your record? Let's, let's get back on track here with, with what, we're fo- what we're about, you know? Um, and it's, it's easy to be distracted. The, the shiny boxes are beautiful and the gear. and They're very hearing, beautiful. Hearing music on a, on a big system like this, it's, it's life-changing, you know? Yeah. But, but art is, the records is more important. I think it's, I, I, and I've felt this when I was younger, I think it's frustrating for people to, young record makers to feel like, um, you know, they're paying for something that quote unquote isn't doing very much. Like I remember yes. the first couple of times I had things mastered and I was like, what did you do? It's like, I turned up, you know, a DB at 800 and used my limiter. And I'm like, I could have done that. I didn't say that, but in my yes. head, I'm like, I know how to turn up 800 cycles and then of course as i go on and make more records realize like that's exactly why i have that person because i already didn't do that and i did a million other things in the mix and did all kinds of sound Mm -hmm. design all this other stuff and then i sent it off and someone who i can really trust goes here's the couple little things and we're done and i go ah yeah that's amazing and that's the thing that i think is hard for especially with everybody learning how to make records on the internet and getting inundated with targeted ads about, you know, you can pay for this mastering chain or here's the all in one master or here's the AI mastering software or whatever. I think it's good to, at least from my perspective, and you know, this is just two two guys perspectives. I don't think any of that stuff really matters. I think what the mastering engineer is there for is someone you trust to make subtle changes at the end. Your mix should be great and as loud as you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And then a mastering engineer will help usher it across the finish line. You don't need to, there's an, yeah, like you said, there's not some um, magical thing that fixes it at the end. Um, yeah. And, go ahead, and yeah, please. an important thing about that in, in terms of like, well, why, why aren't we doing heavy handed processing most of the time? And it's because we don't have in, in mixing. If you, let's just say we strap an EQ across your mix bus and we do a high shelf at 6K, just brighten everything. The vocal the, is going to pop, but the hi-hats are going to come up too. But you have a hi-hat fader. I don't. Um, in mastering, I can't get at the hi-hat separately. So if you want to make a bright 
shiny modern record, you can do processing on the bus or processing on, on, on the mix bus or on groups or whatever. And then you can work the trade-offs in a way that a mastering engineer can't. So we have, we have limits on what we can do because everything we do affects everything. Small mm. changes affect everything. So, you know, it's hard to separate out the kick and bass in mastering. You can do some stuff, but if I want more kick drum for energy, depending on the arrangement, it's going to be hard to get at it without, without affecting the, the bass too. And whereas you have a kick and a bass fader and, or multiple faders, and you can, you can have your cake and eat it in the mix process. So we want to get, we want to get as close as we can. And I encourage people, I'm not a mixer and I wasn't a very good mixer uh, when I did, when I did mix records. Um, and so I don't, I try not to give mixing advice, but in an ideal world, you want to lean less on the, on the mix bus for, for heavy handed processing. Not that great records haven't been made that way, but you want to lean less there and do stuff more upstream on groups or on channels. And um, because it can be a little bit of a challenge the way things interact when you have heavy mix bus processing. You, 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 your attention is focused in one place. You make a move. Oh, that feels better. And then you go and get some water and come back in the room. It's like, oh, but now everything else is fucked. And it's this kind of tail chasing experience that we've all had when you've got complex processing on the bus. So I encourage people to sort of move that away from the mix bus, keep the mix bus simpler, especially if you think you're doing something that isn't going to go to mastering. Sort of keep, keep the mix bus simple if you can, you know? Can we talk it, it, a bit? I think that's great, great advice. Yeah, absolutely. Can we talk about bad information? Bad yes. information on the internet. I, I know you, it's something that you, you and I have talked a lot about offline. Um, and we, and you, you even alluded to it earlier. There's so much, uh, again, like targeted ads and clickable things that seem to offer solutions for mastering because, and, and that's, I think in an effort to make it more complicated, um, what, what are your thoughts on that? How can we combat that in our, in our time here or what, what can people yeah. think about? So to, just to tie back to what I said earlier about being the kid in Ireland, like what I definitely like on the discord or in person or here or whatever, what I don't ever want to be, and, and I don't care how good I get at, at anything. I don't ever want to be a voice of authority where I'm saying, this is how it is. This is how you do it. This is the rule. And I have no interest in that. That's not, didn't get into music to exist in a space of rules. You know, if we want that, we go in accounting or we go in banking where, you know, or maybe aspects of science where there yeah. are hard, you know, objective truths. And music isn't like that. Um, and I love that. I love how infuriating it can be. That's what, that's the endless <laughs> puzzle, right? I um, love that too. So, you know, when I speak about this, I have deep empathy for people who are struggling and searching and lost. And um, because I've been that person and through the work with Unfuck, through all of my friendships, through my journey, I've met thousands and thousands of people who are struggling to get the things, the ideas in their head or in their, in, you know, in their hearts out into the world in a way that, that to communicate these feelings, right? And um, so I have two sort of thoughts about this the information space thing and um, one is i think that that you know the reality is that a lot of the people who are doing tutorials running youtube channels and um, mix workshops stuff like that 
are not very good at it because the people who are very good at it are just doing it, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, you know, of course there are exceptions. Chris Garinger is doing a mix with the Masters right now or did one last week. Uh, he's brilliant at what he does. Um, he is an A-level mastering engineer for good reason and is also doing a class. Um, so, but a lot of the tutorials, you know, you, you, you start to the credits or you listen to the work and it's like, this, this guy or Garrett is not very good at what they do. So you have to be sort of suspicious of the information space. The other thing is that the people who are good, even when they talk, often don't have very much perspective on why they're good. So I said this sort of offhand on the Discord the other day. If I wanted to understand Tiger Woods' golf swing, the last person I would ask is Tiger Woods. Hmm. Because they, they, like when I listen to Manny talk about mixing, I come away dumber than when I started listening. There is nothing to be gleaned from that man's words about what makes Manny great. And he mm -hmm. is great, right? He is great. So, so you have this thing where the, there is a tendency for people to narrativize their journey to get where they were. They want to give useful information. Even when they're trying, they don't have a sense of why they're doing certain things. So they'll sort of post-rationalize and figure out, well, oh, you know, this, that, and make a story. But actually, these people are and i've been lucky enough to be in the room with a lot of them they're just phenoms they are they are one in a million they have unbelievable taste and they express it often and and you know something that that i've had a very small taste of this in when through the unfuck work we would go into rooms sometimes and i would be listening with spider and we're working and i i would say we need to put the speakers on this wall and the client would say oh okay why uh, like i i don't know we just need to do it. And then 10 minutes later, I would like, the processing would complete and I'd be like, oh, it's because of the primary base mode and the, the secondary reflection from this surface, whatever. My brain would catch up with my intuition. And, mm. and a lot of the greats, their brain never catches up because it doesn't need to. They work on intuition. The Spikes, the Mannies, the Tonys, they're, they're, they're brilliant because they don't let their, their thinking mind inhibit their intuitions and so with that said it's very hard for them to grab those intuitions bundle them up into something neat that you can put in a 15 minute produce like a pro video and actually come away with something that a kid can act on a young producer or a young mixer so that's that's very difficult and um, the other thing the sort of adjacent point that i that i would like to make is i think there are and i'm beating this drum pretty hard on the discord right now if we imagine knowledge or skill or understanding as a kind of a landscape i think there are two peaks on this landscape there is one where you test you verify you figure things out yourself you try things and you make contact with the with the outcome so if there are two DACs or two microphones or two you know bus compressors yep. you get them you try some stuff you listen, and you make a decision about which you like. Yeah, you A-B, the old A-B. A-B, and just reps. Sometimes A-B doesn't give you everything you need. Sometimes it's, I'm going to use this for a week. I'm going to use this for a month. So, like, a very simple example is there was, at one point, um, back when I was with PMC, we were doing a big upgrade to the main monitors in Capital and um, in A and B. 
So, you know, $120,000 speakers going into A and B. And there was resistance from the engineers because they were like, ah, these things use class D amps. We don't like class D amps. And around the same time, I was like, huh, okay, let's figure this out. So I had a giant pair of class A amps, probably $10,000 worth that I used for mastering. And I had uh, class D amps and class A, B amps. And I would do A, B comparisons. I would work on one for a week, switch to the other for a week. I did a whole month on one set, a whole month on another set. And I would try over time to figure out what's really going on here and make contact with it myself. That gave me a confidence to go into capital and say, guys, the class D thing is, you won't hear it. And they're like, oh, really? So we set up a test in capital and we did a double blind test with the engineers of capital between class A, B and class D. Once we answered the question, which was the class D was great, everyone moved past that question and got back to making records. Yeah. They, they, the speakers went in, confidence was high, and boom. So to go back to my point, verifying yourself as best you can, what you like, and it doesn't matter what the answer is, but building a tool set, building understanding. What you, you know, like is a very yeah. important thing. The other peak on the landscape of, of knowledge and skill and understanding is forgetting all of that and in the room, moving towards things that feel good. So I've watched, you know, an example I've given before is, is someone like Trent Reznor. Trent has two responses to things. He moves towards it or he moves away from it. That's it. There is no discussion, no rationalization, no, well, if we took this and did a little of that and, and moved one of these over here, it's just like, fuck that. That's awesome. And he keeps finding that's awesome over and over in his career and moving towards it. And he's mm. not like, that's awesome, but I wonder what, um, you know, the guys would think on the Discord. Or that's awesome, but it's out of step with the current, um, you know, it's just, he just follows his intuition. And it's really powerful. And I've worked with lots of artists and been in the room with lots of artists who do that, break all the rules. I've watched people with three things on their mix bus that I despise. Here that in my A-B tests, I hate it. Mm. They're following their gut and the end result is amazing. So yeah. the valley of despair between these two peaks is when you take half-baked ideas from half-baked people and you, you try and use them and get inhibited by them. So people are like, oh, you can't do that because of this and you must have one of these and I can't mix a record because I don't have PMCs and I don't have a VT7 on my mix bus. And oh, if you forgot to dither, the record is broken. And you know, all of these bad ideas that are holding people back. And so I'm a big advocate of take the time to figure things out, preferably offline from the record making process when the singer isn't on mic. You yes. know, figure out which mic you like best. Put that one up. Your best guess for the singer. If it's fucked, change it. If it's not, press record. You know, we should be focused more on lunch than on the than on swapping mics while a singer is is getting ready to do a take, right? So verify yourself, preferably a little bit offline, and build that sort of feedback loop of your taste. This thing where we sort of graze on this C grade information from the internet. It, it's not helping people. Yes. You, you know, not, and, and I, I've watched people who don't know anything technical make cool records because they just followed their intuition. And that's much more exciting to me 
than some guy who's bound up or some girl in bad ideas, trying to trying to mimic many buying gear because John has it, you know, um, eavesdropping on a mastering conversation with me and thinking that point one of a DB on something master matters more than it does. You know, put all of that aside and either figure it out yourself or just forget it and follow your taste, you know? I love that. I love that so much. Um, we're going to have to do more of these and talk about more things. Um, to to circle back to this sort of philosophical thing about mastering, yes, I, I think the thing that I want to get across, and I imagine it's a, a maybe you'd put it this way, or maybe you'd adjust a little bit, but I'd like people to understand the the why the philosophical purpose of mastering and then do it however gets you there don't do it because you're supposed to spend x money and send it to someone who's going to do these five things that's not yes. what mastering is it's not a there's not an ai algorithm that's going to maximize your loudness those tools can be interesting and i've talked about those before they're fun for production like let me see what this crazy uh, you know eq match thing does to my sound but um, the process of mastering and whether that's hiring a mastering engineer or you learning how to be a mastering engineer or just the process of it is really an objective ear that is going to get you to the next to get you finished the next step being mm -hmm. it's it's out it's going to be out into the world um yeah. i don't know if you have uh, other thoughts on that but yeah. i want people to understand that's that's what your that's what the why is now sure look at all the you know you look at tutorials and all that but none of those are really going to serve the purpose of what you're trying to get out of the mastering process, which is a, a, an objective perspective that gets you across the finish line. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, when I look at mastering tutorials or, or people talk about the work ideas, like, well, we always make it louder. It's like, I sent back quieter masters than, than the mix came in. We always make it wider. I probably narrow mixes more than I widen. And I, don't widen, I don't widen very often. I narrow because that cool trick synth that you were hot on in the studio is distracting me from the vocal. I'm trying to connect mm. to the song. And sometimes mm. the stuff in the sides is too, there's too much of a party going on out here. And, I, and I'm, I'm not connecting with the, with the singer. So the idea that we always widen and that that should be somehow a standard part of mastering is, is a bad idea. And... Um, you know, things like that we use multiband a lot or stuff like that, or that we're always using hardware. You know, I'm using hardware maybe 20% of the time. Um, and I know firsthand from talking to people um, that despite sort of what you'll see on the tutorials and, and things like that, that most people are doing most of the work in the box because of the pace of things. And also... You know, when someone asks me what, you know, I think this might have been a question on the Discord. Why would you go out of the box for, for, for hardware? And like the hardware that I'm looking at here, we have two custom EQs that Dave designed that are extraordinary. Custom line amps, there's a custom A to D, all sorts of baller compressors. You know, I have everything I could ever have dreamed of having access to. Um, but I'll go for that if I need more color, if I need compression. Most records have too much color and too much compression already where, where, you know, I need to, I need to mitigate the, the downsides of the, of that processing much more than I need to add more of it. Mm. So when I read about mastering engineers that have sort of default chains, well, I always go through my manly, very new into my Fairchild, into my tube EQ. And it's like, geez, 
okay, you know. And there, you know, there are there are people carve out aesthetic lanes. There are guys or girls who are heavy-handed, and people who go to them for heavy-handed things. You know, I, I get that. Um, but I've I've always sort of philosophically I've wanted to be. I've watched, you know, been in the room and watched people like Howie Weinberg master, and Howie is everything is ten. All the knobs are at ten. The volume in the studio is at ten. It's balls out, super exciting, and I love the freedom to do that, but I definitely don't want that to be the default. Um, I want to be able to go from a jazz bossa nova record that needs just a touch to like the kind of stuff I was doing with Health or whatever that that's or that new Health Corn remix or whatever. It's like it's really extreme, you know, what's needed and the, the mastering, the sort of push that we're we're doing, you know. So. I don't know if I answered your question, but you, you totally, and, and I was, I just, I mean, there's so many things off of that that I love, which is that the main thing being, again, everybody has so many tools for production and mixing. We are in an era where people are kind of overdoing it. Not everybody. Mm -hmm. There's lots of people, yep. you know, min minimalist yep. stuff is out there. Um, cool distortion is out there, but you know, even John and I've talked about it recently. We, we love the, I talking about harmonic saturation, but now everything is feeling too saturated and it's great for, to hear that from you as well. I think what the mastering engineer does is just help make adjustments to the things that you're doing. And if right now what's happening is everybody is slamming mixes and widening everything and saturating everything, you know, th there isn't an unsaturation knob for a, a mastering engineer, but there are versions of things like that where you can soften and you can uh, you know, uh, instead of wide and narrow a little bit. I love hearing that. Um, mm -hmm. It reminds me a bit of, you know, the, the the old school Rick Rubin, you know, one of the greatest producers of all time, um, getting his reducer credit on, yes. uh, on, on early records that sometimes the right thing is to actually undo or, or underdo what one might think mastering is supposed to be, which is loudness and saturation and all that. Yeah. Um, we all have the same tools. I mean, I don't have you know, uh, tens of thousands of dollars worth of outboard gear, but you're saying you have all this gear and maybe it gets used 20% of the time. Mm -hmm. That's really important for people to hear. It is not about the gear or doing a certain thing a certain way. It's about having a set of ears that can help usher it into the next thing. Yeah. And, the, you know, I've, I've said this many times on different in different places over the years on the podcast or on gear slots. I would master a record... I need good speakers and a good room to master records. I, I absolutely do. I need to, I need a good environment. I need to know it. Um, but I would happily master records with the stock plugins in Pro Tools or, or Logic or whatever in a good room versus if you give me a bad room or bad speakers and all of the fancy outboard, all of the beautiful things. They're no good to me if I can't hear what I'm doing. So they, they, we, we, I live in a, in a world of half dB, you know, like most of the work is small moves that are that are moving the whole thing they're moving mm. they're sh shaping the whole record and um, so i need to be able to make contact with that and 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 that's that's an important part of mastering but again it, it gets it can sort of get overplayed this kind of like idea of that mastering engineers are somehow at the top of some kind of hierarchy and it's like I, I don't like that. I think it's like we're all in service of the record. And, yes. and I don't much like the idea of mastering engineers giving mix advice because if they were all that hot at mixing, they'd be mixing records. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I'm really, 
I remember, I remember there was two moments that happened around the same time. I made friends with a young mixer. I don't know how young he is now. He's probably 10 years younger than me. Um, and I had been mixing. When I moved to LA, I'd been mixing records for 18 years. You know, and I'd done a lot of stuff, produced and mixed a lot of records. And I watched this young mixer working. And it was like, oh, if I mix every day until I die, I will not be as good as this guy. You know, I, he has an intuition. He has a way of, of moving things around. Um, and around the same time, actually, via the same guy, John Rausch, this friend of mine, um, he introduced me to Andrew Sheps, and I spent time watching Andrew mix. And I'm just watching what he's doing. He was mixing on the big Neve consoles at the time. And it's like, I don't have this intuition, this sort mm -hmm. of... And, and I knew then that it's like, I don't, I don't ever want to mix again. I'm not, I'm, I don't have that mixer brain, mixer muscle. Mm. Um, so I think a lot, the idea that the mastering person is some kind of authority on everything that comes before, you know, is, is it's something to be careful about. But any, anything I have to say about production or mixing or recording comes more from my experience with Unfuck or my experience when I was with PMC of just being a fly on the wall in, all of these crazy situations that I got to, to be in. Because, uh, you know, yeah. I want to I connect something that I think you're getting to there where you talked about um, you would m not even prefer, like you, 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 could, you could master an album or you could master a song in a, an amazing listening environment with stock plugins, whereas if you had all the fancy gear and not a great room, it just almost wouldn't even be worth trying because that's not what... I, I love how much... John and I have talked in the past about the importance of monitoring. It is yeah. almost as if, and it's not exactly this, but the mastering engineer is like the ultimate version of, of incredible monitoring because they have literally a mastering engineer should be in, an, in a room that has the clarity of every frequency range. They know records. They know that room incredibly well. And anything, any little holes, anything that you're missing, they're going to be able to have the perspective and take just the last little bit on it. It really is like, it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate monitoring environment on some level or the reason it's almost like the reason we talk about monitoring so much is this is a similar reason to have a great mastering engineer in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it it's, it's an important ingredient, but it, if you, if you give that to someone who's 22, the chances of getting great masters are very low because they just won't have the reps. And experience is a huge yeah, part, of it. huge part of it. So, so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a key part of it. But, but again, you know, I'm thinking of like actionable stuff, a young producer or mixer. So do we choose mastering engineers by who has the most baller speakers? That's not a good idea, yeah. you know? So it's like, it's a part of it. I think, I think the switches that, that, you know, that we're talking about flipping this idea of getting away from mastering as processing into mastering as objectivity and, um, I think those kinds of things matter and really finding partners for your vision because yes. the, the, the most important thing is getting the song to the listener. And Spider always says this and um, getting, getting, you know, so there's this giant chain between, you know, Phoebe Bridgers and me and my car driving down Sunset a couple of years later. And it's like, she writes these songs in a moment somewhere in her bedroom or on the road somewhere. And eventually they get to me in my car driving down sunset and make me feel things, 
connect, make me feel less alone, make me feel hopeful, make me feel, um, make me feel things I'm not really ready to feel, right? So it's, mm. th that's what matters. And in between, there are all these things. There are microphones and lunch orders and Ethan Gruska and uh, I don't know who mastered that record, but there's a whole bunch of steps, mixers and, and uh, labels and A&Rs and opinions and money and budgets. And there's all of these things that, that connect, that not connect, that are in that chain. Mm -hmm. Ideally, we want to minimize the amount of those things and, and minimize their sort of negative impact. You know, so in, in, in mastering, it's like looking for someone who gets you. So I've definitely had the experience of like, as a mixer, but also on forums and among friends, getting together with mastering engineers. And it's sort of like this club of like, well, you know, mixers are always doing this wrong and do always doing that wrong. And one of the questions on the Discord was, what can people do to make my life easier? And it's like, I don't know that you should be thinking about making my life easier. I don't know that that's what, what that that should be high on your list of priorities. So, Finding, it's the reverse. It is literally yeah, the reverse. Finding an ally in this goal of, of getting the, the, the emotion, the song, the feeling to the listener. And that ally might be Howie with all everything in the console on fire, or it might be some super uptight jazz guy, you know, with, with spectacles and, and hi-fi speakers. It doesn't matter. There isn't a rule about who that should be. It could be a guy or a girl. It doesn't matter. Um, they could be in the same town as you and you attend, they could be remote, but they need to be a good ally to get you to get that song, to get that emotion to the listener. Now, there's something important. A lot of people. Okay. So give me, give me a minute to sort of expand on something. I know we're out of time, but no, no, we're not out of time. Go. A, a lot of people along the lines of thinking that mastering is processing and not objectivity. A lot of people think that mastering engineers jobs, including a lot of mastering people, think that their job is somehow to push everything towards the center of the bell curve, that we must make records sound like other records. Yeah. That, you know, and there is a little bit of truth in that. There's a kind of a center to the bell curve, things that are not too bright and not too dark, things that translate well to the world, that translate well to radio, translate well to Spotify. But the idea that everything can be predicted by isotopes, tonal balance, or that if we match the frequency curve of serbin mixes that we'll have a serbin mix or that that there is some right answer to the puzzle some de definitive objective factually agreeable right answer to the puzzle of getting you know your record to sound finished there just isn't and i think if i have a lane in this thing i'm i'm inclined to look at what the center of the bell curve feels like and go oh but it sounded better when it was a little bit jankier and I'm, I'm sort of developing a career as someone who's more inclined to leave it a little bit towards the tail of this curve, right? But some people are chasing very bright, shiny, modern. They want their records to sound like Bruno Mars, and that's all they want. Mm. And if you want that, there are people who can help you with that too. And being honest with yourself about what you're looking for and finding an ally in that journey or, or multiple allies. You know, it might be that I know mixers who go to one guy for you know their pop mixes and go to another girl for their you know maybe indie folk thing and that's totally legitimate too because you kind of you lean into the to the skills or the you know the the vibe of of someone for a particular genre and um, but yeah that that that's an important thing i think is is just 
zooming out from the detail, from the baller gear, from the fancy rooms, and thinking, what are we really trying to do? Really, really trying to do with this thing. And finding like, someone to help you with that. I like that you said find find part. I, I can't remember exactly how you put it. Find partners to usher in your creative vision. The mastering engineer should be that as well. Do, maybe yeah. we could just do the last like two minutes on. I, I'm a I'm a bedroom producer. I maybe have spent a couple hundred bucks here and there to, you know, hire somebody to play something, or maybe I had some local guy mix a thing and it wasn't very good, so I'm doing it myself. I paid for mastering one time and it sounded all crazy and I didn't like it, but I, he, he said that he knew how to put it on Spotify. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have a lot of money. I know what I'm doing. I'm making records, but I don't have a lot of money. What do I do for mastering? What, what, what is your answer to that? I would say almost ignore it. For, it sort of forget that it, that it's, you know, that it's important. Believe that it's not where, the sound of the records you love comes from and mm. go back to the fundamentals spend you know instead of instead of listening to bruno mars and thinking what did the mastering engineer do the answer is very little <laughs> go back to what did bruno do in the room when they were making this thing why does this thing hit so hard and it ties into one point i'd love to sneak in which is about loudness mastering engineers mastering is not where the loudness of a record is determined yes it's in arrangement. So the, the analogy that I came up with when I was making notes for this is, when you arrange a record, produce a record, record it, it's like writing a check. And a great mastering engineer can cash that check for every, every bit of value that's in there. And a bad one will fall short. They'll, they won't get it as loud or they'll get it as loud and break it, make it crunchy and distorted in a, in a not nice way. But the potential of the record is determined in the arrangement, you know, recording, production mix particularly in the arrangement. And if you listen to those great records that leap out of the speakers, that's not because of mastering. So if you're short of money, get yourself Pro L2 as a, as a loud maker or Ozone. Think less is more and focus back on arrangement, mixing, balancing, you know, clutter in your arrangements. That's where you get that sort of, that impact, you know? Um, and... And just don't worry about mastering. And when you're ready and when, when you have some budgets, um, look, for that, look for that person who can help you sort of polish the vision. But if you I focus love that. on the fundamentals, you're going you're gonna to do great, you know? I love that. Rory, it is such a pleasure having you on again. Um, last time talking about studios with Spider. We'll have to do this again. Um, I, this is already going to be one of the most viewed lives we've done. I think it's a huge amount of information. We, all, we had lots of technical questions and things like that sure. i'm sure that those can be answered on the discord or people can realize that it doesn't really matter which limiter you're using although there's tons of discussion of that i know you will be on the discord as well and it's been yeah. great to have you contribute there thank you for coming on let's definitely do it again for sure man thank you for everything you do thanks everybody to watch All right. see you soon peace good luck